My name is Robin Williams. I'm still at the ABC. And I've been doing the science show for nearly 40 years at taxpayers' expense. And we're here to talk about expense and money and valuing things. And in a minute, you'll hear why we really need to kill all the bees. It's for the same reason as we celebrated the accidents due to the vast snowfalls in Kentucky this week, where even the interstate road got blocked. And you had jackknife trucks everywhere. You had schools closed. It was absolutely devastating and fantastic for the GDP. Lots of people made lots of money out of the disaster, but I'm not sure wealth increased as a result in the United States. We're talking about valuing nature. Can we put a price on it? And is there a way of making people realize it in the same sort of market sense, perhaps, as we do for most other things? Paul Dutton is from our host, University of South Australia, and he comes from Los Angeles, but now lives here, don't you? You've been here a short while, and Vandana Shiva, you know very well indeed, who's been to... Wow! That's even more than Bob Brown got this morning. God, that's astounding. And Tim Jarvis, who's the greatest for us. What a lineup. Now, having mentioned Kentucky and having mentioned taxpayers, taxpayers' expense, that's a negative, isn't it, in terms of... Bring your microphone up. Right there. Depends yeah. how you count. Depends on? Depends on how you count. Taxpayer I see. expense. I mean, taxpayers pay for uh, public schools. Is that a, a bad expense? Not a bad expense, but does it contribute to GDP? It depends that's how the you measure. measure. What uh -huh. is valuable? Okay. Tell me why you want to kill all the bees. Okay. Um, I, I like to quote Oscar Wilde on this one. Oscar Wilde once described a cynic as someone who knows the value of the price of everything and the value of nothing. Um, there have been lots of attempts to put a dollar value on natural capital and ecosystem services. And I've written a little piece in the conversation um, with the modest proposal of killing all the bees. I think what we have is a problem with the sort of economic rationalist worldview in the world today. And I think, sadly, the environmental scientists and many of the kindred spirits that are in this room have lost an argument with economic rationalists. And as a result of losing that argument, we're seeing continued environmental degradation. It's unequivocal evidence provided by the Global Environmental Outlook, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, we have serious environmental degradation going on. And so attempts at putting dollar values on ecosystem services and natural capital are really an attempt at trying to convince the economic rationalists that their worldview is too small and what they are putting prices on is not everything. Einstein said something along the lines of everything that counts cannot be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. Um, and we haven't been counting ecosystem services for the entire history of economic valuation. So my modest proposal is to kill all the bees. And the reason I say this is bees are a classic example of an ecosystem service. People get the idea that bees pollinate our crops. And if bees went extinct, we would probably have to go around with paintbrushes and hand pollinate crops. Employment, fantastic. Yes, exactly. And so that, you can figure out how much it would cost to pay people to pollinate crops. And the ecosystem services associated with insect pollination have been estimated to be worth about $200 billion a year. So an economic rationalist could go, here's an idea. We kill all the bees. It will grow the economy, it will increase economic activity, it will create jobs, and it will generate tax revenue. And of course we go, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, that, that's not a good idea. But the fact of the matter is, 
when the metrics we use are things like GDP and GDP per capita, when the bees go extinct, if they do, for whatever reason, and I don't want to get in debates about varroa mites and neonic pesticides, if they go extinct, the economy will grow and it will create jobs and it will generate tax revenue. And in fact, I think for a while now, there's a lot of people that believe aggregate human well-being has been dropping while the economy is growing. Things that make the economy grow, wars make the economy grow. Snowstorms in Kentucky make the economy grow. Tsunamis make the economy grow. Bushfires in the Adelaide Hills make the economy grow. And we surround our politicians with economists and their worldview. And they set up the metrics and they set up the objectives and they set the value system by making everything that is monetized what we try to optimize and assessments of the total value of ecosystem services priced at the margin are more than double the entire marketed economy. And people say, well, that's ridiculous. Nature is worth infinity. And I agree with that, right? Nature is worth an, an infinite amount. But water is infinitely valuable to you. And when you price water at the margin, you don't pay all of your income for water even though it's infinitely valuable to you. So it seems like a crazy exercise to put a price on something that's invaluable. Really, it's an attempt to convince the economic rationalists that their worldview is too narrow. And if we can't convince them of this or replace them from being the primary advisors to government, we're in deep trouble. That's all I have. Thank you. Yes. At last, you get some applause. Excellent. <laughs> One quick question before I go to Vandana Shiva is when you say this to economists and rationalists, what do they reply? Um, most of the ones I speak with agree with me. And actually, a lot of economists are going through an apostasy where they're recognizing the failures of the... Larry Summers, the guy that was president of Harvard who said women aren't as smart as men, who was a classic neoclassical economist, is now saying, well, we need to raise the minimum wage, we need to take into account things that haven't been taken into account. Economists are going through a, an apostasy, the, the, even though... There are some that have been right for a long time, people like Herman Daly. Um, a lot of the other economists are recognizing they, can, they don't get prices right. The global financial crisis is an example of that. So a lot of the economists I speak to are having their own personal crisis within their discipline. They're recognizing that th there's some cracks in it right now. Vandana Shiva, Valuing Nature, please. Well, you know, I'm, I'm remembering Lawrence Summers, 1992. He was the World Bank's chief economist the Earth Summit was being organized at Rio, and he wrote a memo which got leaked out and was trouble for him. He said, you need to export more pollution to the third world, first because it's not polluted enough. It wasn't then. We are catching up very fast. Um, that um, when people fall sick in poor countries, it costs less. And when they die, it costs less. That memo shaped, in a way, the discussion that then evolved about the arithmetic of genocide, where they were literally talking about one Indian, or t 10 Indians being equal to one American in, in that kind of assumption of inequality. Um, you know, I've traveled 40 years to wake up to the value of nature, as well as wake up to the blindness of an economic model that doesn't see nature's functions and services. Uh, 1972-73, I got involved with a beautiful movement in the mountains where women who'd never been to school were saying, these forests are our mothers. They give us soil and water and air, and we're going to hug them till you stop cutting the trees. The ec economic lobby of that time and the forestry establishment said, no, 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 these are just timber mines, and you're blocking revenue collection and progress. In 1978, because of deforestation, we had such a devastating flood in the upper reaches of the Ganges that the flood came all the way to Calcutta. That's when the government woke up to the fact that the women were right. The flood relief cost way beyond 
what they were collecting in terms of forest revenues. Um, it was better to leave the forests in the mountain. And today, our region, forests are managed as conservation forests. That their first function is stabilizing soil and water, not providing revenues. And then 1982, I was invited by our Ministry of Environment to look at the impact of mining. The ministry wrote a terms of reference about the looks of the mountains, because our Prime Minister Indira Gandhi at that time had commented on how the queen of the hills is being stripped naked because of limestone mining. We did the study. We showed that the limestone left in the mountains to perform ecological services as, as an aquifer contributed to 200 crores, which would be, oh my god, uh, 2 billion rupees in water supply, and then further benefits down the road in agriculture, livelihoods, and mining was destroying that economy. The Supreme Court used our study to give the first ruling in Indian history on ecological conservation. They said, if commerce undermines nature, commerce must stop because life has to carry on and the state has a duty to protect life under Article 21 of our Constitution, which guarantees the right to life. We are having a major issue because in the period since I joined, we've passed many laws for the protection of nature, recognizing that nature contributes. There's attempts to dismantle it because the growth obsession is driving India. And of course, we have all kinds of partnerships with the Adani coal mine and the port that'll destroy the Great Barrier Reef, and I'm very, very critical of it. Um, but there's a mountain called Niamgiri, which means the mountain that upholds the sacred law. Uh, the tribal community that lives on this mountain has been fighting a bauxite mine. And just like leaving the limestone and the forests in the mountain performed a bigger economic function than extracting it, leaving the bauxite in the mountain here performs a bigger function because there are 32 rivers that come out of it, supports irrigation, agriculture all around, besides the cultural value and the anchor of this tribe. So far, it has been stopped. But those who get used to extracting the last mineral, chopping the last tree, and damming the last river don't stop easily. And their riding height isn't just the economists. Behind them are those who've seen in the model of GDP, a brilliant measure for an exploitative economy. And GDP only measures the conversion of everything of value into cash for a few. So we have a 1% economy that's now not just a slogan of Occupy, that is the data in the economic analysis. I think we need to go back to the original meaning. The meaning of value was, it's derived from the Latin word valere, to be strong. GDP is weakening our ecosystems and our economies. Even price was not about money. Price too about worth and value and reward. And somewhere along the way, both got attached to monetary values of trade and exploitation. And in your paper, you talk about the assessments of the ecological functions, which are 25 to $33 trillion when the world economy measured in terms of conversing resources into cash is 18. We've just completed a study, it's called the Wealth Per Acre, looking at the externalities of industrial farming in India. And we just measured the social and ecological. We didn't calculate the health. It's 1.2 trillion for destroying our bees, for poisoning our water, for killing our farmers who are in debt, 291,000. Our GDP is 1.2. So we're actually dealing with the destruction of an economy that's much bigger. An economy used to be about managing the household. It's derived from the same root oikos as ecology is, and it lost its way. We have to bring it home. Vandana Shiva, you have a gigantic country. It's going to have the biggest population in the world soon. 
and you've given some examples. How widespread is the awareness of what you've just said amongst the people? Well, I think the majority of people who depend on nature are fully aware, and most Indians still live in nature's economy, as I call it. They depend on the land, they depend on the forest, they depend on a lake or the ocean for fishing. The tribals depend on forest produce of all kinds. They depend on the commons, even if they are in the slums. And that's why they're really resisting the land grab, which would take over the land. The, uh, the government just passed an ordinance uh, to grab the land of the people. There was a colonial law, which was amended. Uh, now, sadly, just like the women of Chipko, their voice wasn't recorded till people like me started to write what they were saying. The voices of the majority of India is not counted. The there are literally 10 oligarchs, Adani being one of them, whose voice counts because they hang around the prime minister's office just as much as they hang around your prime minister's office. And that is the tragedy, that our democracies have been hijacked by the oligarchs. And we have an economic model that it's made to look like it's neutral. But how can measuring the destruction be counted as the creation of wealth and well-being? There's a brilliant book by Marilyn Waring, uh, written at the same time when I wrote my book, Staying Alive. It's called If Women Counted. And she went all the way to the roots. So why is it that when we need money for women's welfare, children's welfare, there's no money? There's no budget. When you need public broadcasting, it's taxpayers' expense. But the same taxpayers' expense to give subsidies to agribusiness, to give concessions to global industry, it's not looked at. And that's where she worked out that GDP basically calculates on the basis of if you produce what you consume, you don't produce. So nature doesn't produce because she consumes what she produces, her water, her pollination, and women Ordinary people, small farmers, are counted as not producing. And when you say killing the bees, you know, the UK was getting so desperate because its growth was really plunging. They fixed it last year. They decided to add drug trafficking and sex trafficking. That shot it up by $10 billion. So every externality that's negative will be counted to make this fake economy grow. And we're going to see that. Happen I love it. If we don't create an alternative worldview and move so fast with such coherence and such deep love in our hearts for protecting this planet and our lives and our future generations. Thank that's you. the only thing that's going to wake up the slumber. Thank you. Bandana <laughs> Shiva, you mentioned the change of the constitution. Next week on the radio, I have. Uh, a young man called Suzuki who lives in Canada who did the who did the pale blot who did the pale dot tour of Canada at the end of last year and uh, the idea is to get every major town there to commit to exactly what you just said to value air water earth and biodiversity and so on. And it's interesting, as you'll hear, quite a number of big towns like Vancouver have signed up, and it's changing. The Constitution will include what you just said. Tim Jarvis, thank you for being patient. First of all, before I ask you about what's been discussed, could you explain your T-shirt? He's good. He's very good. Yes, this is... Um, I, I spend a lot of my time in the, uh, in the polar regions in a bid to show that the places are melting with a view to trying to change public perception about the issue of climate change. And I come back to Adelaide to thaw out from uh, those, the excesses of, you know, minus 35. And my next project is to climb those mountains at the equator that still have a glacier, of which there are 25. Sadly, we have only a quarter of a century left before all that ice is gone. And this is indicative of a far more uh, complex issue, of course. The project is called 25 -0. 25 mountains, zero latitude, 25 years, zero ice. We will beam in to the COP talks at uh, Paris at the end of this year. COP is the Council of Parties, the Kyoto-based international, frankly, talk fest where all the governments get together and claim they're gonna do something meaningful about climate change and say, what are you doing? Can we see some action, please? 
at the same time raise funds for projects that we think represent exemplars of what could be done, that represent part of the solution, not a silver bullet, but part of the solution to the problem, and look to replicate and scale those interventions. So thank you for the opportunity, Robin. Brave man. I didn't Brave pay man. him. <laughs> I should have. Well, you're one of the people here who, uh, for a few hours a week, actually works for a major company, Arup, the engineering company. And um, I just wonder how you take from that vantage the valuing of nature we've been discussing. Well, I am an environmental scientist. I do work for a company called Arup, and I'm not going to plug them, but they are owned by the staff. And it does make a difference when you're 10,000 strong globally, but you haven't got any shareholders you have to pay. So it means we can pursue a lot of loss-making things with a view to hopefully making some sort of positive difference. And uh, it was a model, uh, an economic model of running a business that was deemed to be um, flawed, so much so that they were convinced the company would go out of business back in about 1958, and it's still going strong. So evidently, there's something to it. <laughs> And as for valuing nature? I mean, the, the previous two speakers have done a very good job. I think there are a couple of questions to ask. Uh, one is how we do it. The other is do we really value it? And the third one, inevitably, is what do we do about it? I think the, the how, the previous two speakers very eloquently talked about GDP. I mean, if anybody has the chance, please do read the 1968 Bobby Kennedy speech about GDP, where he says it measures... Uh, the costs of the locks on our doors and the ambulance that take my child to hospital because someone has run them over and the cost of drug rehabilitation and treatment for that person that did that. Uh, and all of this uh, contributes towards uh, our GDP. And yet it doesn't measure, measure the friendships we have, the ro robustness of our discourse, the love for our children and all the other things that really make us, make us who we are. That was 1968. And in fact, you can go back another 35 years. And even in the 1930s, we were saying GDP is a, a useless measure of what we uh, represent, but still we are stuck with it. Other alternatives, happiness indices in places like Bhutan might be a bit of a stretch as much as I really love aspects of, of what they stand for to try and uh, impose them or, or introduce them into a society like ours may be a little bit different. Certainly certain aspects of them would work. And since really the mid-1970s and early 80s, we've had other indices that take into consideration welfare of, as well as uh, the, the economic robustness of, of, our, of our economy. So there are other models out there. Uh, just extending uh, on, on, on what was said earlier, I mean, I, I noticed in the news recently that the UK had been issued a bill from Brussels for 2.1 billion euros for undisclosed income from the sex and drugs industry. So evidently it's a, uh, an, an international issue. Um, but uh, no, it does really bring into sharp relief the, the, the ludicrous nature of, of, of the GDP as the metric to measure how, how we are as a, uh, as a collective. Um, not going on about GDP any further, but I went to the Lima climate change talks, um, COP20, the Council of Parties 20th meeting. They meet annually uh, in a bid, allegedly, uh, to solve climate change or at least reach some sort of meaningful uh, legally binding international climate deal, which they failed to do 20 years running. Um, quite frankly, it's embarrassing going. It was the first time I'd been. I went in my, um, in my capacity as an ambassador for WWF, which is an untenured role. I sat on my hands. I didn't want to say anything lest I disturb meetings that had been set up months earlier between the executive of WWF and, uh, and politicians who were in attendance at the talk. So I kept very much um, to the sidelines and listened rather than spoke. But uh, people wore their attendance at multiple cops as a real badge of honour. And they said, oh, this is my number 17. And I thought, well, that's nothing to be proud of. Yeah, 17 years of wasting time. There were 10,400 people at this event. And that was down from 14,000 the year before. How can, we, how can we be proud of this collective uh, inability to make uh, a decision that needs to be made about the future of the planet? We really need to put a lot of pressure on these people, which is what I hope my 25-0 project will play a small part in doing uh, at COP21, which is the event coming up in Paris at the end of this, uh, this year. Um, I'm not going to talk for much longer, but just suffice to say that um, a great media fanfare announced the fact that the Green Climate Fund, which is the principal mechanism by which um, the, uh, the, the Kyoto process will uh, harness funds to decarbonize our world, had topped 10 billion now, there must be some 
collective cognitive dissonance going on here, but the US government, almost at the same time, bailed out their own economy to the tune of $1.1 trillion just to balance their own budget for that financial year. If they are prepared to do that as one of the 192 countries in attendance and the rest of us can only collectively cobble together $10 billion, evidently we do not value the environment sufficient, commensurate certainly with the scale of the problem that we're faced with. 110 times the global account for do dealing with climate change by one of the countries in attendance. At the same time, Fossil fuel subsidies globally are around $1 trillion of the $85 trillion, which is the size of the global economy. So I ask you, is $10 billion, which is 1,8,500th of global productivity, sufficient for arguably the largest issue facing us at the present time, if, if not of all time? What can we do? I think we'll maybe leave that to the discussion, but there are many things we can do. But just one more figure, I, I promise. Um, but the uh, Australian super industry is worth $1.6 trillion a year. It's the fourth largest in the world, can you believe? Where we put our money is our biggest opportunity, if we're going to be talking about money, to really influence what gets spent where and really cut off the, uh, the blood flow to these organisations we feel are not doing the right thing and not putting us in, in the right, pushing us in the right direction. Thank you. There is a tendency really to do what we've always done. We'll do the same thing again and again. And you know, there are lots of examples of 19th century technology and industry that, <laughs> that Australians are still sticking to, which is extraordinary. I remember Peter Newman, who's a professor at Curtin University in Perth, who wrote a fantastic book on the future of cities, which actually launched in the White House. And he talked on I think it was Late Night Live the other day, about trucks in Australia and how many people they kill, hundreds, and the doubling of the cost of that means of transportation of freight versus if you had modern trains, not 19th century trains, but new trains. And of course the discussion ended, well, there's no way in the world we can invest like we used to last century and the century before in major infrastructure like that. Why do we have to continue doing things that are demonstrably less efficient and so much more costly? My take on it is, is, is exactly what Tim said. We don't value nature. <laughs> we don't. We don't really do it yet. Yeah, but valuing money, if you actually use that transport system, you'd save half of your budget and you'd save any number of lives. You don't have to worry about nature. Just look at the sums. We are not a rational species. We, well, we don't want to be rational for 10 or 20 years' time. We'll be rational for, oh, at most, 14 months, shall we say. Yeah, here's an idea uh, that I've mentioned to people in, in South Australia it, in terms of a new way of, of a new economy. Build electric cars in South Australia. You know, just just say we're going to replace the Holden plant with an electric car manufacturing facility, and we're not going to let a private company do it. Just crowdsource the money. Just say we'll invest in a company to build electric cars for South Australia. It's a, it's not a private company, and they're going to build a people's car that is reusable and recyclable. It's not going to be like this iPhone where they change the cable on every iteration of the iPhone because so they can sell more cables. You'll build a people's car. I don't know why we don't do that. I'm suggesting, I'm not in a position of power. I have some ideas and I, there's tons of good ideas. This trucking idea, why don't they happen? Greed, is it evil? I, I, I really don't know, but it's frustrating. Well, for those who think greed is good, it's not evil, it's saintly. It's the only way you should be. In fact, those that protect nature and value nature or the common good, they are evil because they're coming in the way of greed. And it's not an accident in today's world. It's the ecologists, it's the ones who are defending the rights of people under constitutions who are being thrown into jail, not those who are performing crimes against nature or against people. I want to mention two additional things. I think you cannot separate the value of nature 
and the good for humanity, the common good. It's one. And that's why when the Copenhagen calls, the talks collapsed, because President Bush flew in after his Nobel Peace Prize and basically disrupted uh, the climate negotiation, took the five biggest polluters and said, let's gang up and say we'll have voluntary uh, emission reductions and not these legally binding uh, reductions that are part of the UN framework on climate change. Let's not negotiate that. And Eva Morales, the president of Bolivia, who's the first indigenous president, announced that he said, I thought we were here to protect the rights of Mother Earth, not the rights of polluters. And I'm going to go back and call a world meeting on the rights of Mother Earth and climate change. And out of this came this declaration on the rights of Mother Earth, which is valuing nature. Uh, and it was taken to the United Nations. I was there at the General Assembly. Um, the Bhutan project is not just on happiness. It's on happiness and well-being. The well-being part gets left out. Now, the word wealth, its original meaning is the state of well-being. As I said, everything somehow in our times, in the last 50, 60 years after the war, has got reduced to money, even if it had deeper meanings in earlier times. And we need to reclaim those original meanings. So we had a UN General Assembly on redefining the economic paradigm precisely for the externalities that this paradigm is causing. And I'm just preparing a manifesto uh, on land and what's going on in the world around land. Most people don't realize that even what we see in Syria or Nigeria today is part of the externality of not valuing nature. It's from 2009 onwards, the combination of non-sustainable land use and climate change led to a drought in Syria. A million farmers got displaced, went into the cities. The anti-Assad movement started. The global powers thought arming the rebels would get them one more regime change. Um, it didn't. Instead, you got an ISIS growing with those arms. And now no one knows what to do, but it began with climate change and land degradation. The Boko Haram didn't exist before 2009. Lake Chad, on the basis of which farmers and fishermen survive around the lake in many countries, it's dried up and is a fraction of what it used to be. As the livelihoods disappeared, these extremist groups come up, both because they're frustrated and angry and don't know the cause, but also because arms and killing become the final economy when everything else is over after nature is unable to support you. So we need, the value of nature is it's the only basis of livable, stable, free societies. Otherwise, you will just see the Syrias and the Nigerias expand all over the world. But pathetically, it's not just the so-called rationalistic in, uh, in economics. Um, you know, I've done my PhD on the foundations of quantum theory on non-separability, that everything is connected. And yet, those who make decisions live in a world of separation. They will live in a world of mechanistic isolation. And they will not see the consequences of their actions, whether it's climate change because of fossil fuel dependence, or it's social political disintegration because of the harm to nature. And, and that's why they keep treating the consequences of harm to nature as if it's a military problem which requires more wars. Okay, before I go to questions, the statement you just made is that they don't listen, they don't want to know. How do we change that? How do you make them listen? How do you persuade them? Paul. I tell my students, uh, there's this thing called voting that might help. But I, 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 I'm really stumped with this one. I mean, th this is systemic change. That's it, what Bob it, Brown said this morning, and he said one and a half people are, one, one and a half million people here in Australia are not registered to vote. What's the point of voting? The question there about uh, if you have people to choose from who not necessarily have a huge difference in this regard. Got to do something. Have to do something. Fantasy, what do we do? Well, you know, um, I talk of earth democracy. 
that the old representative democracy has been hijacked. And instead of being off the people, by the people, for the people, it's now off the corporations, by the corporations, for the corporations. <laughs> Given that, what we need is both to be fully inclusive of nature and her rights in our thinking of human freedom, as well as to exercise our vote in our everyday lives. The water we drink, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the way we move around, our mobility, each of them is a place where we make a choice for the planet or against the planet, for our communities or against our communities, for the future or against the future. That's quite general, though. I'm thinking of examples that can convince politicians. I'm thinking of, for example, there was a few years ago a time when New York City was looking for a new way of treating water because the water was becoming polluted and they could spend $4 billion on the technology and someone said, do you realize the forests are being degraded and if you let the forest recover, it'll cost you nothing? <laughs> that is convincing I would have thought to anyone who happens to be in politics. There's an example, it works. Tim, before we ask questions, what sort of things would persuade the polyers and so on? Yeah, that, that, I think that touches on the, on the answer. I mean, yes, the power of voting these people out, or, or in the case of Australia, not voting them in in the first place would have been a good thing, but uh, uh, is, is, is clear. Um, I, think, um, I think as abhorrent as it is to talk about valuing nature in monetary terms, I think uh, each and every one of us, our greatest capacity to really influence things on a day-to-day -day basis is really the amount of money we invest and where we put it. As I say, there's $1.6 trillion in the Australian super funds, uh, fourth largest amount in the world. And if we made judgments about where we wanted that to go, that would be a very, very good uh, start. In terms of projects, though, um, the sort of stuff I'm focused on, I'm not looking at silver bullets for climate change. I like to find projects that are able to be delivered on a much smaller scale and then replicated and scaled. Uh, I think this is the important thing to do because the average CEO tenure, uh, uh, CEO for an ASX-listed company in Australia is three years and one month, I think it is. And a politician, let's face it, is not much longer. Uh, and so we have to deliver answers. We as the scientific engineering community, if it's a technological fix, we have to be able to deliver those kinds of solutions and put them at the feet of these CEOs and these politicians so they can deliver them within the three years they've got to get some kudos back for having delivered them in the first place. The last thing they need is you saying climate change is a problem or biodiversity loss is a problem. Here's a solution that's going to make your successor look really good in 15 years' time. They're just not going to do it. We need to be disaggregating this, this massive issue and presenting these people with something that's going to make them look good for their electorate and play the game based on the way that they play it. Uh, you know, a politician's eyes will light up if you can give them a solution that's going to make them look good, that's going to be deliverable within a specific time frame, and that re represents part of a solution to a much bigger problem. So I think it's incumbent upon people like me, working for an engineering firm, but being an environmental scientist, to, to think of what some of the solutions to some of the bits of the bigger issue might be. It's no good saying climate change is the biggest multi-generational issue facing humanity. Can you please sort it out? You've got to meet them halfway and, and we've got to come up with some solutions that we can deliver within specific time frames. You can actually get your, your arms around. Uh, otherwise, the issue is, is, is often too big for them to consider. Sure. May I just mention before you write all the politicians off, a couple of hours ago I was talking to Peter Garrett and uh, again saying how much he might miss Canberra. And re returning to the point he often made when you brought up statements like that, that while nobody was looking, nearly every day they got something through that really made a difference. And I had an interview done with, with Steve Chu, Obama's energy secretary and a Nobel Prize winner, and the same stuff came out. It's worth reading that interview to see, despite the fact that they dropped 500 million on a scheme that didn't work, hundreds of others did and made a vast amount for the government in investing in renewable technology. So some stuff, while you're not looking, is going on. Questions, please, and wait for the microphone and uh, no soliloquies and straightforward question. Who's the person with the microphone? Choose a person who looks good. There you are. <laughs> 
Um, I've always been interested in Japan, whose economy is supposed to be flatlining, da-da-da. When, when you look at the equity issues in Japan, they're not as bad as many other countries, much better, in fact, um, the difference between rich, poor, and, and poorer people. So are they getting something right, or are they, are they really flatlining, or whatever? Well, I can tell you that um, it's because they had more equity that some people see it as a problem. And uh, trying to change the structures in Japan or in, uh, in Europe, where there was a much stronger welfare economy and therefore instruments for ensuring a less of a gap. And if you look at the graphs, uh, the, the 1930s, which was called the age of the robber barons, then that led to the depression and the Dust Bowl and, and the wars, the, the kind of uh, breakdown of the share of the rich compared to the rest, we are kind of returning to that everywhere. And sadly, the way economic instruments have been designed, GDP is only one, but speculation, the financialization, the fact that uh, you know, the financial world is 70 times bigger than the real economy, and the real economy is less than a quarter of nature's economy. So you're talking about a financial world that is so top heavy that it could totally destroy the planet and grab all the land and the water and it'll never be satiated. So there is an attempt actually to do it wrong in Japan because on these narrow indicators of growth, the wrong recipes work very well. Can I just also say Japan um, uh, used to make a big song and dance about the fact they still have the largest proportion of intact native forest in any developed country is because they used to buy a lot of ours, um, which allowed them to keep theirs intact, thanks very much. Um, so that wasn't a good thing. Uh, the other thing is there's a massive amount of quantitative easing going on in Japan at the moment. So they're throwing a tremendous amount of prop, uh, money at the, at the problem to try and stimulate that economy and keep it going. I think historically the economy was always based around a, a good set of values where people looked out for one another without kind of, you know, over, overstating things. Uh, but these days, it's being propped up by a lot of uh, a lot of cash being pumped in. I would just say that Japan has, I think, the highest median household income in the world. So the people in the middle are doing pretty well. I think Australia is right behind them. It's something I, I I like about Australia: high minimum wage. I just left the United States, where the minimum wage is seven bucks an hour. But still, I I think in the long term, Japan is 125 million people on an island the size of California. And if they're really going to try and make it sustainably, they're going to have to buy resources from the rest of the world. Next question, please. Thank you. Um, my question is about. Um, when we do place a value on um, ecological services, and especially if we uh, attach it to a specific monetary amount, what is to prevent people from thinking that we are holding nature hostage for a certain value? I'm speaking specifically of a project in Ecuador which was accused of holding nature hostage when it tried to place a value on the intangible value of nature and of the indigenous people that lived in a very precious ecosystem. Paul, that's your area. Um, the reason I engage in this is is really because I agree with Tim. We don't value nature. I, we're not going to get the prices right. The, the, the real right price is infinite. The, the question is, can we communicate with the, the overlords <laughs> in a way to make them appreciate the value of nature? And, I, and perhaps we're just going to have to have more and more wars, just strife, and failed states before they get it. Um, this is sort of a peaceful attempt to get people to appreciate the value of nature. I've heard a little bit about the Ecuador story. I was rooting for them, and I guess it, it, they also had some oil in the ground that they wanted to be paid so that they didn't, if they, if they left that, they sunk that resource and let it stay in the ground, no one wanted to pay them. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, that's just, I, I was like, oh, go Ecuador. That was a cool idea. It didn't, didn't work out, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, in all the work I've done over the last four decades, uh, putting this value on an ecosystem and its services is much more to put a red light and a red signal to say don't exploit because this is what the contribution is. There is of course an attempt to finan financialize nature 
uh, one would be destroy the bees and then you pollinate artificially. But the other is, they, there's something called RED, the reduced emissions through reduced deforestation. They act, there's a big battle going on, and I think the Ecuador issue is part of this. The indigenous people are fighting very hard because those who traded in fossil fuels earlier would like to trade in the photosynthesis process, <laughs> and, um, but they can't. You can't really take that and trade in it, but they'd like to trade on the value and take the value to Wall Street and speculate on it. That is where they'd like to take it. This was stopped at Rio Plus 20. They gave it the name The Green Economy. It's the first time I saw everyone march in unison to say, this is not a green economy, where you take a few elements and then say, now we'll trade on this and speculate on it. The value of nature is much more to say, don't destroy. Gambling strikes again. Yes, please. I wonder if you could comment on the elections, recent elections in Greece and the value of people's votes and um, the common good that we talked about. Or Queensland? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it was so sad what happened to Greece and all the austerity programs that came out of the F Wall Street collapse and then it hit Europe, but the southern states were hit more. And part of what was being required under austerity was privatize the water, privatize the health, privatize university education, put taxes on the number of trees, olive trees on your farm. And that's what people were rebelling against. I was just looking at the figures. 45 billion is what Greece must pay in order to get 70 billion. And the structural adjustments are fascinating because every time a squeeze is put to say you owe us this much, change your economy, the structural adjustment is to make the adjustment so that everything that was a common good becomes a privatized sector to keep generating the wealth from electricity, from water, from energy, from transport, from education and health. And of course, it's, not, it's very tight for Greece because at this point, they have to keep borrowing to pay salaries, etc. But I think this is happening all over. I just got a letter from Spain. I advised the last president, Zapatero, and uh, you know the indignados who preceded the Occupy movement are going to be winning or coming second in the next election. So the, you, you can't have entire populations shut out from a decent life and a security and expect them to just disappear. They're going to respond. Vandana no. Shiva, the uh, interesting thing I noticed in Greece, I go there every year, is that um, many of the communities I went to see are doing quite well. It turns out the secret is they've opted out of the conventional economic system and they're bartering. <laughs> the ones who are growing olives are swapping with people. And the young people have gone back to the land. I know PhDs who are now farmers again. And when you were asking what's the one thing, I think the one thing that's a solution to climate change, biodiversity erosion, water depletion, ill health, unemployment, it's ecological agriculture. Yes. And everyone can engage in it. I'd like, I'd like to say a little bit about Greece. I, I think Iceland was a little clue. Iceland had a little financial crisis. And then Greece had a little clue. And I was rooting for Greece because I think the game's falling apart. On uh, The money's piling up. In the United States, the, the, the distribution of wealth is, is it's not just GDP per capita because that averages out of the fact that 1% of the population has 41% of the wealth. We've had privatizing schemes in Bolivia. Th they're not making money the way they used to make it. And so now they're going after water. You know, we now pay for bottled water. That's one of those classic um, examples of human well-being going down as we pay more for it. And a lot of those water bottling companies simply put uh, tap water in the bottle and sell it to us and make more money. 
So I'm very leery of these privatization schemes. In the United States, we're trying to privatize everything. We've, we, we've kind of snuck. One of the things I love about Australia, and I hope you guys keep it, is a public university system, because we're privatizing our university system. And, and there are consequences to that. So, so public funding for the, in my home state, or the state I was last in, Colorado, CU Boulder, 8% of its revenue comes from the public now. And how do they pay for it? They raise tuition fees, so the students pay more and more, and so student, student debt has exceeded credit card debt in the United States, right? And so now the industry is buying in. You're gonna get the British Petroleum Department of Environmental Protection, the Monsanto Department of Food Science, the Pfizer Department of Clinical Drug Trials, and the Goldman Sachs Department of Ethics and Fiduciary <laughs> Ethics. And, and, You're and kidding. And, 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 no, the, the Koch brothers have bought an econ department in the University of Florida, and you need an independent public university system to speak truth to the corporate world. Well, who are you going to ask? Are these pesticides good for us? Are you going to ask the, the Monsanto to biology department at Harvard? I mean, I, you, I, you really have to watch out for privatization efforts. And ecosystem services are a public good. Universities are a public good. Weather satellites are a public good. These things should be paid for by the public and the benefits should flow to the public. We should be very concerned about privatization. Um, in response to some of these awful, wicked challenges we're facing, biodiversity loss or food insecurity, uh, climate change, uh, there's often uh, a push for uh, technological solutions. So, for instance, with food insecurity, it's GM crops. Uh, with climate change, there's a big push in the public conversation at the moment in South Australia about nuclear as being some sort of solution to climate change. I'm keen to get some comment around um, whether these kind of technical solutions are the solution or are they perhaps part of the problem because they are perpetuating the same thinking that got us there in the first place? Well, first I want to congratulate the current government of South Australia to have kept the state GMO-free. Uh, GMOs aren't a solution to food security. They don't produce more. They're causing, creating more pests and diseases and more weeds that they were supposed to control. And the new data coming out on the combination of Roundup glyphosate and GMOs that are tolerant to Roundup uh, on what it's doing to both ecological processes of the soil, in the plant, and in our bodies. And the new book that's being released today um, on seed sovereignty and food security, The Women in the Vanguard, has a lot of contributions by sci women scientists uh, on, on some of these issues. Nuclear, you know, the world was going nuclear-free after Fukushima. Yeah. The Germans said, we won't have nuclear. And then climate change was used as an excuse to say it doesn't emit fossil fuels. The reason that argument is wrong is it doesn't emit fossil fuels directly, but its overall carbon footprint is big. In any case, radiation is not safe and clean. I think, um, I think there are no silver bullets, evidently. Um, but I, I think we as humans tend to want to default immediately to... Um, uh, supply-side solutions. In other words, if we're short of something, we're just trying to think of another way that we can get more of it, whether it's being cleverer with its use or finding it elsewhere or whatever it might be. I think we need to really be focusing in um, equally on, on the amount we are actually consuming. There's a concept called the global hectare, which is the amount of land that we have appropriated from nature uh, and including uh, coastal uh, marine reserves and not marine reserves, marine fisheries uh, uh, and areas we fish. And that total is around 14 billion hectares, and there's 7 billion of us and counting, so that leaves kind of two hectares for each of us to get our education, our food, the energy to build our laptops, uh, uh, and everything else in between, the education for our kids, etc. Uh, except that people in the US and Australia and Western Europe consume 10 or 12 global hectares each, and people in Bangladesh consume 0.3 of a global hectare each. Now, if we can reach some sort of 
happy mean whereby everybody consume at this end of the spectrum at least consumes slightly less if we can if we can if we can bring ourselves to consume slightly less that might be part of the solution i don't think we should automatically default to alternative energy sources that we can derive more power from or uh, you know, GM to, to produce higher yields from crops, as we are always prone uh, to doing. Having said that, if we are going to look for solutions, I firmly believe that humans like to see evidence of what a solution might be. And, and as I say, the, the kind of the, um, the economic political environment in which we live these days, where your typical CEO or a politician is only in power for a very limited period of time, you must be able to deliver some of these solutions in a relatively short time frame so that they are interested enough to actually want to help you to deliver these uh, solutions. I'm a believer in delivering small exemplar projects, making the IP freely available from what has been learned from that particular project and repeating and scaling uh, as, as, as my contribution to want to uh, do something about the problem. My project 250 uh, will look to fund 25 projects that I think are going to make a, a difference and, and, and make the IP of those freely available for the next lot of people. We have time for one last question. Um, I think it was Roosevelt who introduced the Glass-Steagall banking system and Ronald Reagan who took it out gradually. Um, I noticed that the BRICS nations uh, are trying to bring this about again. I'm here. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you could comment on se the separation between commercial banking and speculative banking and why we don't tax speculators like we do tax ourselves. Well, one I'd like to mention, sadly, it was Clinton who dismantled the Glass-Eagle Act that kept retail banking separate from speculative and investment banking. And there was a big proposal that the UN nearly adopted called the Tobin Tax which would have taken care of everything, you know, from climate change to anti-poverty programs, etc. But those who've designed the instruments of, you know, I, I can't believe, you know, like the derivatives, take speculation, speculative financing of housing, bundle it up, securitize it, and then create derivatives. Nobody knows what's actually being traded. They're doing the same with food, they're doing the same with land, and we need a separation. I think we need a very clear wall between nature and her ecological functions and a speculative economy of any kind. We need a clear wall between what is vital to be managed with responsibility as commons, our river systems, our forests, our seeds, our biodiversity, the stable atmosphere, and can't be privatized. So we do need these basic principles, again, and it's not a luxury. For anyone who says, oh, it's too big and too deep, unless we go there, even the smaller problems won't be solved. And only invest where the, the directors of the fund are themselves invested in the same portfolio as you, I would say. <laughs> Final word, Paul? I would just say I think it's fascinating. There's a lot of people here that care about the environment, and we're talking about banking. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting. I think that's the right place to look. I've studied the environment for a long time and talked about a lot of environmental things, and I've really started focusing on things like money. And if you think you understand money, I don't think you do. I think it's a weird thing. Glass-Steagall is one of those things that I vaguely understand. I think the whole banking enterprise is based on this debt machine that allows debt to grow exponentially. And I think we have to get back to what Tim says, what are the limits to growth? And if we can't really come to grips with limits to growth, we're not going to get it. And, and the whole financial enterprise does not get that. That's all I got. So, one final example of how you don't value nature. Next week in the program I have, that's the science show, 12 o'clock on Saturday, repeated. At four in the morning on Monday? <laughs> that's for the cat burglar audience. I have uh, a couple of people, one speaking a bit later in the month, 
about how we've killed 90% of the big fish in the ocean. And Amanda Vincent from Canada talks about the fact that now in some parts of Thailand, they are bottom trawling for anything they can get and they're using slaves. Now, if that is not a situation that needs to stop, I don't know what is. There goes the music. Two of you will be out there signing books, Fandana Shiva, yes, and uh, Tim Jarvis. You don't have a book? Oi, vai is mia. It's on research methods. Oh, one <laughs> one. <laughs> One's coming, so out the front, two authors signing books. Would you thank the panel? Thank you.